This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. The profession of journalism is in crisis. Today's journalists face immense challenges from accusations of fake news on the one hand, to harassment, arrest, and even the murder of reporters on the other. At the same time, we who rely on journalists for information are constantly bombarded with breaking news. Confronted with video and print updates in real time, it is increasingly difficult to keep up with, let alone understand, world events. With barrels of information rolling toward us constantly, How can we find the time and space to stop and consider, to digest the content of news and to reflect on what it all means? Seen through the whirlwind of information, the world in general, and the Middle East in particular, can appear more confusing and chaotic than ever. Today's guest will help us sort it all out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Renee Garfinkel, your host, with the Van Leer Jerusalem Institute. Today we'll be talking to Seth Franzman about his new book, After ISIS, America, Iran, and the Struggle for the Middle East. Seth J. Franzman is the op-ed editor and Middle East affairs analyst at the Jerusalem Post. He has a PhD from the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. As a reporter, Franzman has covered wars and their consequences across the globe, from the Middle East and Africa, to the Ukraine and Russia. Seth Franzman, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Seth, I I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself. Well, I was born in Maine, and actually in the area of Maine that's the North Maine Woods, in a sporting camp called Little Lyford Pond Lodge. And it's uh, an interesting story because... When I was a kid, we didn't have electricity and we used to get water from a a spring or a well because my parents had decided that they wanted to kind of go back to nature and live all year round in an area that hadn't changed probably in 150 or 200 years. And I grew up there until I was seven years old. And then I guess my parents decided that raising a child uh, alone in the woods perhaps was not the best idea for his long-term development. So we moved to a town closer to the coast of Maine. But I recently went back to where I grew up this summer, and it's changed a bit. It's now run by the Appalachian Mountain Club. But it was fascinating to take my own son to see the cabins in this area that's very I think, special and unique, especially in a world that today is all about iPhones and, you know, everything is kind of instant delivery and Amazon and drones and things like that. Yeah, that's an unusual 
early life. And um, who knows, maybe it helped you be a better observer of all the events you report on. Remind us of what was happening in the Middle East in 2015 when you traveled through the region to do the research for After ISIS. Who were the players? What were their goals? What was the state of play? Well, I think we need to go back just a little bit before that and remember that, you know, the Middle East is in a kind of fascinating period of flux. And if we look at the Middle East, say, not just 2015, but say a few years before that, we had the American invasion of Iraq in 2003. And then we had the Arab Spring that broke out in 2011. And I think if we look at that period, there was a lot of question marks about what the Middle East was going to become. Was it going to become an area of democracy? Um, you know, would all of these aging dictators like Mubarak or Saddam Hussein or the Assad family or Gaddafi, you know, what would become of all these kind of regimes? And many of these regimes they had their roots in the kind of Arab nationalist period of the kind of post-colonial area of the 1950s and 60s. So in a sense, they themselves were kind of remnants of what had come after the Ottoman Empire that had fallen apart in 1918. So I think if we look at 2015, we were seeing a kind of bookend of 100 years since the destruction of the Ottoman Empire and a huge question mark over the region of what is going to happen. Now, the areas of the region that I ended up going to is, is for instance, you know, Iraq or Turkey or the Gulf. Obviously, I'm based in Israel. Um, so when we look at those states, uh, what we see is that Syria was going through a massive civil war that had broken out in 2012. And that civil war was a result of the fact that the Syrian regime, unlike, for instance, in Egypt, decided that it would not step down from power and that it would actually end up fighting its own citizens. So instead of what happened in Egypt where you had the regime, you know, was dismissed and then the, there was the Morsi government and then there was uh, the military, it, you know, Syria became this very brutal civil war. In some ways, parallels a bit perhaps swept up in, um, in Libya or Yemen in which these states kind of collapsed. And what's very interesting about the Syrian conflict is that, which is unlike, I think, Yemen and Libya, is that the Syrian conflict helped to give birth or to fuel the rise of ISIS or Islamic State. So it wasn't just a Syrian civil war. The Syrian civil war actually impacted all of the countries around it. And we can, of course, talk about all those specific elements. But I think that's what we have to understand when we look at that kind of 2014, 2015 year is that the whole region, I think, was in a kind of major crisis and a turning point in terms of what, what was going to happen next. Okay. And 2015, you made the decision to take a personal look to see firsthand what was happening there. And uh, that was a very good period of time to do it. ISIS was the real threat. And I wondered why you compared ISIS to the evils of the 20th century, Nazism and communism. Well, I remember being in Jerusalem in 2014 in the summer. And ISIS had sort of kind of burst onto the scene because 
I think a lot of us were watching the Syrian conflict. I don't think people were realizing what was going to happen to Iraq. And ISIS initially looked like another version of Al-Qaeda or all these other different groups that were kind of preying on the Syrian civil war because there was no shortage of little extremist factions. We have to remember that there had been a bunch of journalists that had been kidnapped at that time. And it was looked like the Syrian rebellion was becoming kind of hijacked by extremism. So all of a sudden you had this group with these black flags all of a sudden driving into Iraq and taking over Iraq's second largest city, which was Mosul, in June of 2014. And it was pretty shocking. I mean, I remember seeing the images of the Camp Speicher massacre where ISIS had slaughtered all of these Shiite um, cadets. They killed about 1,500 people in a day or so. And I remember when we saw the images of it, it, it seemed fake. It didn't, how could this be? And these images, by the way, in those days, they were on Twitter and YouTube. There was no filter, also on Facebook. The social media companies hadn't gotten smart enough to get rid of them. So I, you know, throughout that period, 2014 to kind of June 2015, I was mulling over this idea of going to Iraq to to see the kind of fight against this group. And I, I felt that, you know, if I had been alive, at the time of, say, the Second World War, I would have wanted to play a part um, in the, the fight against Nazism. So, and I think what we were seeing from ISIS, because the crimes it had committed, and it, it, it had bragged about these crimes using, you know, it used video and stuff, it put them online. Not just killing Shiites, but then it was expelling all the Christians from Nineveh Plains sealing the fates of about 100,000 people or so who had to flee very quickly. And then we remember it, it turned its sights on the Yazidi minority and began slaughtering them and selling them into slavery. So, I mean, this was clearly far beyond what Al-Qaeda had ever attempted to do or, or other groups. So I, you know, it, to me, it seemed like a, a clear contrast that this is a an evil that's on par with something that we've seen in the last century, whether it's, I don't know, the Armenian genocide or the Cambodian genocide. But obviously for me, the, you know, the Holocaust or, or the, the rise of Nazism came to mind uh, clearly. You say that 2018 was year zero in the post-ISIS Middle East. What was year zero like? Well, well, the reason I use the word year zero is because I think that this war against ISIS, because because it kind of consumed Syria and Iraq, which is sort of the center of the Middle East or the, the kind of beating, beating heart of the Middle East in a way, and also had reverberations that go all the way to North Africa and Turkey and all around it. I think that the defeat of ISIS, which happened, you know, between the fall of 2017 and actually like March, not 2019. So 2018 is a convenient year zero. I think that that defeat puts the whole region at a crossroads. And we have to think that the Middle East is a very important region in the world. But what happens in the Middle East, and I think we've learned that lesson through things like 9-11 and other things, is that you know, what happens here has a huge impact on the rest of the world for a variety of reasons. So I think we're looking at, you know, a big, a big crossroads. And like any other crossroads in history, I don't know whether it's the Treaty of Westphalia or I don't know, the, 
Paris Peace Conference of 1918 or whatever. Like any crossroads in history, we don't know exactly what that's going to mean in 20 years because it could be that, you know, we look at this as, you know, a very unique moment in which, well, ISIS was defeated and you see now the, the whole world has turned a page and there's not going to be groups like ISIS. Now we've, we've learned our lesson. Or it could be looked at as a kind of milestone in which ISIS is defeated, but much worse things are about to come. Like, I mean, 1918, for instance, didn't end all wars forever. People thought that, oh, the First World War is over. There'll never be war again. Well, actually, 1918 right. led directly to, the, to the, the Second World War, right? So actually, it got much worse. But that doesn't mean that we don't see 1918 as a kind of very important moment in world history. So the players in the Middle East, in the Muslim Middle East that was at war uh, at the time were the Shiites, the Sunnis, and the Kurds. Tell us, tell us about the Kurds. Uh, who are they and why, after struggling for independence for so many years, 500 years according to one of the people you met, why do they still not have a state? Well, the Kurds are a large um, ethnic group in the Middle East. So you could say similar to, for instance, Turks or Arabs or Persians or Azeris. They're one of many large ethnic groups. Now, they, I think, number something like 20, 25 million people or something. I mean, it's not always clear because in all the countries they live in, I think there's an, each country has an interest in reducing the number of them on censuses. The Kurdish people, I don't, I don't pretend to be an expert in the history of all the peoples of the Middle East. I mean, but the Kurdish people, we know, we know today where they exist. They live in Iraq, in Syria, in Iran, and Turkey. Uh, most Kurds are actually Sunnis, although there are some some Kurds that are Shiites. And you know, the Kurdish, the Kurdish minority in all of these countries, they suffer various different um, discriminatory policies. So, for many years in Turkey. You know, the Kurds were actually uh, described as mountain Turks. There was a kind of denial of their existence. In Syria, for instance, they couldn't speak their language at university. They, many of them didn't have citizenship. In Iraq, they were subjected to genocide during the Saddam regime, uh, including uh, poison gas attacks. And in Iran, which has probably treated them the best, I think that, you know, Kurds have perhaps probably more rights and have not been subjected to the same kind of horrors, but they do suffer some discriminations. And anyway, they live in a mountainous rural region, so their region is not is not in the capital city, so they obviously have less influence and less perhaps less of a role to play. And so in each of these countries, they've also had um, resistance movements, or obviously in the Turkish um, government's point of view, the, the Kurdish uh, resistance is a terrorist organization called the PKK. So but in each, in each place, they've had a kind of different way in which they sought to kind of resist this uh, suppressive power structures. You noted in the book that the uh, role and appearance of women among the Kurds symbolized the differences between them and the Sunni women under ISIS and the Shiite women under Iranian influence. Tell us about that. I think that one thing that's striking about the Kurdish region, I mean, in every country that the Kurds live, I think that they obviously have, they borrow or learn from their neighbors and they have common, some commonalities. But 
my experience was that certainly the Kurdish region of Iraq seems to be that, um, I don't know if I could use the word liberal or progressive is the right word because we're talking about something that's very different than the West, but certainly in terms of the fact that ISIS was forcing people to wear all black um, to the extent that you can't even see a person's face or hands or whatever. Um, and the way in which the Iranian regime seeks to force women to cover their hair, even if actually Iranian women don't want to do that, maybe. But, you know, the Kurdish region strikes one immediately as being a place that looks on the surface quite different. And I think that in terms of, you know, dress is a very important part of culture. So, you know, when Kurdish national dress for women, um, the traditional dress is much more colorful than this uh, more black uh, bias that you see in other parts of Iraq. Um, or the kind of way in which the Iranian uh, regime would like to force people to dress. So that's something that is a kind of immediately one is struck struck with. Now, of course, in all these societies, for instance, Turkey, you know, since the time of Kemal Ataturk has been a secular society. So the Kurdish region is not necessarily more progressive or secular or liberal than, for instance, I don't know, coastal regions like Istanbul. But certainly the some of the movements among the Kurds in that in the Kurdish region have tended to be to trend towards uh, you know leftist ideologies or Marxism or different things. So, and that lends itself to being more secular and less religious. So I think across the Kurdish regions, you find people that tend to be sometimes less religious than their neighbors, and you know that has certain effects. But I think it's also part of a a kind of national identity, which is that the Kurds tend to say, well, yeah, but we're, we're different than the people that live next to us. And we have our own national dress and our own ways of doing things. So it's also part of, I think, a kind of national pride that, you know, women, for instance, in those areas don't look like or are not expected to dress the way, for instance, some of these extremist organizations have, have attempted to force women to dress. And since you mentioned Turkey... <clears throat> how how is it that Turkey moved from being a beacon of secularism in the Middle East closer and closer to Islamic fundamentalism today? I think Turkey's kind of journey in that respect is, is complex and interesting because Turkey's brand of secularism, let's say in the 1920s or 30s, I mean, it, of course it had certain progressive aspects to it, which is similar to the way the the Soviet Union, for instance, had certain rights for women. But the Soviet Union was an incredibly brutal regime in other respects. So if you were a woman that was has a right to an abortion, that's fine. But if you're being sent to a gulag, that's not great. So I think that, you know, the Turkish nationalism and secularism, it did want to revolutionize society and it wanted to change it and it wanted to make it look more like what we think of in terms of, you know, the secular revolutions that took place in Europe. But, you know, sometimes secular revolution doesn't come along with a society necessarily being particularly liberal. So I think that what happened in Turkey is you did have secularism, but you also had uh, influence of the military and extreme Turkish nationalism. So it's kind of interesting that when the AKP or groups like it began to rise in the 1990s, they were connected to political Islam and, and the Muslim Brotherhood, but they were also and originally seen as being much more democratic than the former, you know, Turkish um, 
like secular nationalist history. And actually, when the AKP came to power, it was also more open-minded on the on the Kurdish issue. So initially, it seemed well, okay, this is actually going to be a more open society. And the only difference is that, of course, women will now have the right if they want to cover their hair, they can cover their hair universally. And actually, women wearing hijab or whatever won't be discriminated against. But you know what actually happened in Turkey is I think it's actually gone down the road of becoming a more a slightly more religious society, and certainly in terms of other aspects of freedom, it has not it has not in the last five or ten years become more free. There has been erosion of the press freedom, erosion of other types of civil rights and other things. So it's kind of a complex story, I just think, because Turkey's kind of nominal secular nationalism of the 1950s or 60s. Yeah, okay, it looks secular, but you know, regimes that are secular can also be um, kind of brutally nationalistic or, or almost fascistic. So it's a mixed bag. And I think the question in Turkey is, okay, well, can you get to a more humanistic um, secularism as it's, as it's understood in the West, which is more democratic and more secular at the same time? And I think the problem in Turkey is, is that it doesn't seem to be going in that direction. Well, let's at least touch on a couple of the other countries in the Middle East. How did the war against ISIS uh, lead to the increased Iranian influence in the region? And how did it impact the Gulf states? So in terms of the Iranian issue, when the war against ISIS broke out in 2014, or when ISIS suddenly captured a, you know, a third of Iraq and a third of Syria or something, Iran was against ISIS because from Iran's perspective, the jihadists, of course, are also killing Shiites and hate the Iranian regime. So Iran supported, for instance, the Kurds in northern Iraq when they were attacked by ISIS in 2014. Iran is also a key ally of the Syrian regime. So... It's ironic, but, you know, Iran and the United States were on the same side in terms of fighting ISIS. And the, U- the U.S.-led coalition was on the same side. But I think that, in retrospect, what we see is that Iran also was able to use the war against ISIS to kind of leverage or extend its influence. So every single place that was liberated from ISIS, for instance, around Mosul, the liberators, yeah, they were the Iraqi army, but they were also usually Iranian-backed militia groups. Now, usually those militias are paramilitaries or Shiites, sometimes local Shiites. Some of them are also can be Christians and other groups. But uh, in the end of the day, they do have a pro-Iranian slant to them and sometimes financial or military backing. And they might even be led by people like Hadi al-Amri, who's the head of the Badr organization, who served alongside the Iranians in the 1980s against Saddam Hussein. So the end result of the destruction of ISIS is that you end up with Iranian influence in all of these places that ISIS is defeated, except for places where American-backed groups or Western-backed groups like the, the Kurdish SDF, mostly Kurdish SDF or the Peshmerga, um, were, were liberating areas. So that's the kind of interesting double-edged sword that you get with the Iranian role. And then with the Gulf, I think it's also interesting because I think that the ISIS explosion all of a sudden, 2014-2015, I think sent kind of shivers down the spine 
of many of the Gulf regimes. And in the Gulf, we have to remember, these are some of the wealthiest per capita countries in the world. And they have a very high standard of living. In some cases, a standard of living that's primarily provided by the fact that they import millions of servants. A group like ISIS coming along, you know, threatens to destroy their societies very easily because just a few terrorist attacks in any Gulf state would destabilize it in terms of the fact that it's considered an economic hub or whatever. So those countries don't want any instability. And these countries also, especially like Saudi Arabia, have wrestled with the fact that they had their own extremists and jihadists from the time of Al-Qaeda. Because as we probably recall, Saudi Arabia was playing a role alongside the Americans in supporting the Mujahideen in Afghanistan. But when you support these people, sometimes they also come home. So there were no shortage of people from the Gulf, from some of these countries that actually joined extremist groups. And I think many of these countries eventually realized that flirting with extremism was not going to work because you can't just give money to extremists abroad and not have them come home. So I think all of them, most of those countries eventually realized that they have a lot to fear from these groups and they need to find a way to crack down on religious extremism. That includes ISIS or Al-Qaeda or whatever. And I think it fundamentally changed in some ways the way in which the Gulf perceives the region. Because some of those countries, um, for instance, Qatar, some of these places, they had played a less than pure role in terms of supporting some of the Syrian rebel groups that became more extremists. And I think that they realized a bit too late, well, we wait a sec, we don't want to, we're giving money to people that are not so great. And these people are, could come back to bite us. Very complicated. Let's, uh, let's shift our focus to Europe for a moment. What was the impact of the war against ISIS on Europe? So Europe, I think, is like another reverse side of what we see from the Gulf, which is that you have a bunch of countries who didn't take seriously enough the numbers of people in their own society who were being radicalized. And those people were being radicalized uh, for a whole variety of reasons. But one reason is obviously the easy access to online material and you know networks of extremists that also go back decades because we have to remember the 9-11 hijackers, some of them had also been through Europe. And there had been no real attempt to stop these people and not very good intelligence sharing. Now, I think when we get to the period of ISIS, some counterintelligence you know, sharing and, and stuff had improved. But most of these countries were not prepared for the fact that hundreds or thousands of their citizens were about to book tickets and go to Turkey and then go to Syria and then join ISIS. Now, initially, when they saw that their citizens were going to Syria, they thought that they were joining Syrian rebel groups. And in some cases, they tried to entice these guys to come home by giving them things like educational opportunities or, or even gym memberships in one, in one instance. They said, well, listen, just don't be a jihadist. Come back. Go to the gym. I think that they, it was a bit naive. It's like, you know, <laughs> you can't this, – this, this guy went to a foreign country. Yeah. He went there. He poses with rifles. And event, for him, it's kind of like a tourism terrorist training camp all combined into one because for a lot of the jihadists, we have to remember that the way in which it was sold online and the way in which it actually, actually kind of was in some cases 
was, listen, I can go to a, a foreign country and I can do whatever I want and pose with guns and I can kill people and I get a free house and maybe they'll even give me some women or slaves or something too. I mean, it seemed like a great deal for some of these people. So, I mean, when we talk about toxic masculinity or something in the West, I mean, this is like the ultimate toxic masculine experience. So thousands, yeah, you said thousands of people from Europe. And by the way, not all men, it's not just men that are intoxicated by the idea of owning slaves and jihad. It was lots of women. And that's something that's not always well understood. I mean, they're, these women tend to be kind of mocked as like jihadi brides or something. It's not so simple. She's not just a bride. She also wants to go. She also has a choice. Large numbers of women. Uh, in some cases, I heard, for instance, in Kosovo or Albania, actually it was women that were responsible for radicalizing the men and encouraging them to go in some cases. So anyway, lots of these people go. Most of these European countries, from what, from what I understood, did not bother to help to try to stop these people. They kind of felt like, well, actually, this is kind of a good outlet for these people. Let them go. They won't come back. The problem is these people do come back. They went to Turkey. Some of them got deported by Turkey and then maybe even went back again. And eventually in 2015, what a, what a surprise, there started to be mass terrorist attacks in Europe, killing hundreds of people by people that had joined ISIS, many of whom had had a very privileged lifestyle. This isn't the stereotype of, oh, the guy was poor and suffered discrimination and decided to become an extremist. I mean, many of these people, if you looked at their lifestyles, they were already involved in other types of criminality, sometimes gangs or drug use. They usually had a pretty privileged background. Usually their parents were hardworking immigrants or their grandparents were. And for them, you know, this was a kind of, this was like becoming a soccer hooligan, but, you know, getting to use a gun and owning slaves. And it took a while, I think, for European countries to start cracking down. But then, of course, the crackdown is always kind of in the extreme. So all of a sudden, you have armed soldiers and and, uh, armored vehicles outside um, the Uffizi Gallery or outside the Louvre or every European landmark, every European major event like uh, Bastille Day has to have armed soldiers everywhere. And all of a sudden, I mean, I I remember going back to Europe and it was a kind of fundamentally, I think, changed landscape in places like France. Yes, it it really is quite different. If you visited 10 or 20 years ago, it's not the same place. Uh, your, your writing about the Yazidi genocide moved me very much. And uh, your, your description of your impression of what you saw, I'd like to share that with the listeners. If you're willing to read page 64 and... 65, those two paragraphs we talked about? Sure. So let me just, I guess I'll just give a little context, right? I mean, this, these, these sure. pages, I had gone to northern Iraq, and this was in December 2015. The Kurdish Peshmerga had just liberated an area called Sinjar, Shingal, which was an area that's a city and a mountain that actually have the same name. And this is the mountain where many of the Yazidis who were fleeing ISIS had been able to find shelter, and they had lived up there. And there were tens of thousands of IDPs or displaced Yazidis that were living up there. And the city down below is called Sinjar, and there's a whole bunch of villages that had once been down there. And most of those villages were the scenes of the worst ISIS crimes in terms of just total genocide of the people 
women, women and men being separated, women taken to slavery, the men being uh, murdered. And we, we kind of knew going in there that that's what had happened. But I think the extent of finding the mass graves at which were eventually, I think about 40 mass graves were found in which there were thousands of uh, dead bodies. You know, that was something that was kind of new when I'd first arrived there. And I drove in to Shinjar in the, in the dark. It actually got dark as we were driving in. So it was very spooky. We went over the mountain and we ended up sleeping in a house or near a house that these uh, Kurdish in uh, demining team, or I guess the people that are experts in taking out mines, were were living there because the whole city was festooned with mines, and everywhere there were IEDs and stuff, and they all had to be taken out. So I, I'll just read this passage then about you know what we kind of the reflections of having seen uh, what uh, all this mass graves. To come, face to, to come face to face with genocide is unimaginable. My parents told me never again. They told us in university about human rights. But it was a lie. In my lifetime, we sat through the genocide in Rwanda, the ethnic cleansing in the Balkans, the genocide in Darfur. ISIS broadcast its mass killings on social media, and its members bragged of selling women on Twitter. Here in the killing fields of Sinjar, the bones of those killed in 2014 sit on the surface. Human hair pokes through the grass that has grown on the bodies. Skull fragments, bullet casings, a teenager's soccer jersey that says Emirates on it. The clothes people wore when they were murdered are there. The blindfolds they wore could be seen. The Iraqi ID badges have been recovered. No international investigators are here. No NGOs are working here to protect the human remains. The world was silent again. These lives could have been saved. To see the bones sitting there causes anger and rage. How could Western powers, with all their technology, all their drones, the EU Parliament and Councils on Human Rights and International Criminal Courts, do nothing? Drones surely could see this happening in real time, and ISIS videoed it and broadcast it at the time. ISIS didn't try to hide the mass graves. It just bulldozed the bodies. Sheikh Nasser, who had escaped to the mountain in August 2014, said he and his men could see the bulldozers making the graves. Later, wild animals dug up the bodies, and the bones were strewn about, bleached by the sun. We drove to a second mass grave, slightly smaller. This one was southeast of Sinjar City in a field near the earthen berm that marked the new front line with ISIS. In a slightly damp field with new grass poking from the earth, the grave was also near a dry stream bed. It had been taped off with red caution tape like a crime scene, which it was. The Peshmerga pointed to several Iraqi police badges in the grave. Some of the Yazidis had worked for the local security force before being murdered. One man showed me on his phone that he had found IDs of the Yazidi men killed here when they first discovered the grave in early December 2015. I was one of the few first foreigners to see it. I snapped as many photos as I could. But there was something surreal here. 
As bones stuck out from the earth and the men spoke of the IDs they had found, there was a lack of professional documentation. Where were the NGOs? Where were the experts from the International Criminal Court? Where were the local courts and forensics? Iraq is a poor country, and there was a war just a kilometer away, but it seemed like someone should care more about documenting these crimes immediately upon discovery. The Nuremberg trials began in November 1945, 11 months after Auschwitz was liberated. But the evidence collected, interrogations, and documentation of the Holocaust took place almost immediately to the extent that the liberating powers could. That was in 1945 with rudimentary techniques and with millions of victims. Chilling, absolutely chilling. I've read it several times and I just listened to you read it and it's, it's, there really are no words to describe it other than your reactions. And, and you write as well that some of the survivors of the genocide told you that some of the men who bought the women as slaves and raped them had once lived next door in Arab villages. And we've seen this in, in other uh, ethnic genocides around the world. The Hutus massacred their Tutsi neighbors and the same in, in all the other places we know about. Do you have some thoughts about how that works? How people can get to that point? Well, I guess there's a kind of what's the word? It says fam familiarity breeds contempt. I mean, I think that it's strange, but I think that, you know, you can live, people can live side by side. And if they are different groups, you know, despite all the stories about coexistence or this or that, I mean, it's, it's odd, but when those groups are thrown into kind of a chaotic situation or, or one of the groups is radicalized or told that they're superior and that they can just do whatever they want, um, people become, you know, just totally cruel. I mean, beyond what animals would ever be capable of. I mean, just, just, and as you just said, I mean, whether it's Rwanda or the Balkans or the Nazis killing their neighbors, I mean, people maybe are almost more likely to murder their neighbors who are from a slightly different group than they are, than they are likely to like kill people that are like three towns away. I mean, there's something bizarrely just awful about it. But I mean, the bizarre thing about the ISIS genocide is you have those, those two faces of that. It's like, you have people that did horrible things to their neighbors. Then you have people that flew from thousands of miles away from some place like in London, all the way so they could get to a place like Sinjar to murder and rape just totally random people from some other place. Like, and then you have this incredible act of heroism of the fact that people from the region, um, you know, whether it's whether it's Kurdish fighters or, or Shiites from other parts of Iraq or whatever, you know, that they took up arms. Um, in the beginning, at least, outnumbered and outgunned, and they they were able to defeat these uh, these ISIS um, genociders, and I think that's the same heroism that we saw, for instance, in Rwanda in the people that fought the Hutus, or or the the heroism of I don't know people that joined the Red Army in the in the early days of the war as well. Which brings us to the post ISIS Middle East. Uh, let's talk a little bit about who gained and who lost. Uh, how is the United States perceived? Talk about the role of Russia and the new alliances in general 
that emerged from the fighting? So in my view, the the ISIS war is a catalyst or a symptom of a much larger issue, which is that you have a whole series of kind of broad brushstrokes in the region. And one of the big brushstrokes is, for instance, the, the rise of Iran, which we discussed a bit. And another one is the certainly the rise of Russia, which is that Russia has returned to the Middle East in a big way in terms of supporting the Syrian regime. Syria was a key ally of Russia during the Soviet period, it's a, it, and it continues to be a key ally. I think that was a big prestige operation for Putin in the sense of showing, yeah, well, we, we can preserve this regime and we will stop these people. And actually, from the Russian perspective, because what they say is, well, listen, we're just uh, fighting to preserve the sovereignty of Syria and international law, et cetera, et cetera. And they say that, you know, the Americans and these other regimes have flirted too much with kind of chaos and regime change and extremism. So they think that preserving the Syrian regime is a kind of message of history, which is no, it's important to preserve these countries and stability. And stability is more important um, probably than democracy or other issues. So it's okay to have an authoritarian regime because what the, the other choice is that you have extremism and uh, chaos, and chaos is not good in their view. So I think Russia is now looked upon in the Middle East as a pretty reliable player, which is why, for instance, it's selling the S-400 system to Turkey, which used to be a NATO-US ally, which is why Russia gets along with the Iranians. It's why Russia has relatively warm relations with Israel. It's why Russia is greeted in in Egypt and Saudi Arabia uh, with a friendly face. And I think it's viewed as a more reliable player than the Americans, oddly enough, because the Americans are a historic player in the region and the Americans are very powerful. But I think the kind of way in which U.S. foreign policy since the years of George Bush Sr. has zigzagged back and forth and back and forth like a drunk sailor. I think that, you know, a lot of countries in the region say, okay, you know, if the Americans want to help us, that's great. But we know, we know that in four or eight years, you'll have a new administration, and then all of a sudden it will change. So I think the people have become a bit reticent. And they also wonder when it comes to the American role, well, okay, one day you're deciding to topple Saddam Hussein and Gaddafi, and the next week you decided to leave. So we just don't know which American we're going to get next week, you know, which face is going to come out. So I think that you know, it's not that the Americans have bad intentions think that the it's what do they say the road to hell is paved with good intentions american foreign policy is not i don't think has ever been intended to do bad it's usually intended to do something that they think is good but sometimes what you think is good is it doesn't always end the right way and i think for instance the iran deal certainly from the obama administration's perspective they thought was good but many people in the region or some people felt that it gave a kind of carte blanche for the iranians to do whatever they want i think that the you know, the George W. Bush administration's view of uh, regime change and democratization, of course, came from a good place. But, you know, many people thought that it spread chaos in the region. And um, the Trump administration now has, of course, a different view. It, it, it's torn up the Iran deal. But I think the Trump administration wants to withdraw from Afghanistan and Syria and maybe Iraq. And I think that that, you know, leaves a lot of people very jittery especially, for instance, American allies who say, well, wait a sec, you can't just walk away. It's like walking away when a house is like the fire in the house is halfway extinguished. 
and you're like, okay, well, we, we did half of it. Let's just go back to the fire department. It's like, no, 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 you can't do that. You have to extinguish the rest of the fire or it will come back. And I think people, you know, there is a, there is a big question mark about where the Americans are going to end up if, if they choose to leave, for instance, Syria or, or Afghanistan. Okay, those are the big players, America and Russia. And, but is there a new shifting, a new set of alliances among Middle Eastern countries since in the post-ISIS world? Yes, I think that the Middle East is also deeply transformed. And so one alliance system is obviously the Iranian one. Now, none of these alliance systems are directly a result of ISIS. ISIS is kind of a symptom that allowed them to, let's say, uh, put them on steroids so that they went that they grew faster. I think now, so the Iranian alliance system is quite clear. It, it's obviously Iran, then it's Hezbollah in Lebanon, it's the Syrian regime, and the Shiite militias or paramilitaries in Iraq, or political parties in Iraq, and then you have the Houthis in Yemen. So, the Houthis are kind of the simplest ally because it's just a Houthi rebel group. Now. The more complex allies are the Shiite-based groups in Lebanon or Iraq. Hezbollah has obviously been an Iranian ally for many years, decades, I guess now. And they, of course, are empowered a bit through their fight against Israel. So Iran uses them as a proxy, or they use themselves as a proxy against Israel. Now, the Syrian regime is a, is a kind of national ally of Iran. But the Syrian regime has been weakened, so Iran has set down roots there. But then in Iraq, you have these Shiite paramilitary groups that are also political parties. They're kind of similar to Hezbollah in that extent. They have a political party and a, and a, and a kind of militia. The question there is whether or not Iran's allies will kind of just take over Iraq because, and try to transform it into a more Iranian-style state where the Shiite paramilitaries become like the IRGC, or whether Iraq will just be weakened like the way the Russians kind of used to view Ukraine or Belarus as a kind of buffer state for Iran. So it's not clear. But that's the Iranian alliance system. Then another alliance system we have is the Turkish-Qatar kind of axis. And that's kind of interesting because both Turkey and Qatar are the kind of remaining Muslim Brotherhood groups in the region. The Muslim Brotherhood looked like it was on an upswing after 2011. Uh, or even before that, you know, we had Hamas coming to power in the Palestinian Authority briefly. And then in Gaza, we had the Morsi coming to power in Egypt in 2011-12. And all of a sudden, it looked like the Qatar, you know, and Turkey's idea of a Muslim Brotherhood solution. Also in Libya, the Muslim Brotherhood looked like they were going to do great. Uh, and maybe even in Tunisia, it looked like the Muslim Brotherhood would be like the main benefactor of this Arab Spring that when people decide to overthrow Arab nationalist regimes, well, what would they choose? They would choose uh, Islamic democracy, ostensibly democracy. And I think that they, Turkey and Qatar backed that, and then Turkey and Qatar were very surprised when the military came back in Egypt. Obviously, Hamas has been totally isolated. Um, and in, in Libya, uh, General Khalifa Haftar has mostly defeated a lot of the extremist groups there. Uh, be with backing from Egypt, of course. So um, it hasn't been a good story, and I for the, in that perspective for the Brotherhood. So you know, it's these are natural allies, Turkey and Qatar, ideologically, religiously, and also just for lack of the fact that neither both of the countries are lacking other allies. 
so they've kind of come to love each other through the fact that their other their other um, let's say options are are fading. So Qataris, of course, as we know, have a huge problem with the other Gulf states, which are trying to isolate them. So Turkey sent special forces there to protect them um, in twenty. It was 2017. So that's one alliance system. And of course, Qatar and Turkey are also growing closer to Iran in, a, in different ways because they're not naturally inclined towards Iran, but uh, for certain reasons, because they have issues with the West and they've decided that Iran is one way that they can get an outlet away from some of their other adversaries. So Turkey wants to increase trade a lot with Iran. Turkey and Iran and Russia all work together in terms of the Syrian conflict, because all of them view the Americans as a huge problem for them in Syria. So Turkey doesn't like the Americans because it thinks the Americans are supporting the PKK, which from Turkey's perspective is part of the SDF. And the Russians, of course, would like the Americans to leave because the Russians want the Syrian regime to win. And the Iranians want the Americans to leave for obvious reasons, because the Iranians, Iranian regime view, views America as kind of the great Satan that it has to resist against. So that's another alliance system. And then I guess we could say that there's a kind of looser, co more complex alliance that consists obviously of traditional American allies, which is Israel, Saudi Arabia, the UAE, Egypt, and the Americans and Jordan. This alliance system, I think, unlike, for instance, Iran's, which is a very close-knit group of friends, uh, usually based partly on religious ideology, and I think different than the Turkey Qatar thing, which is only two states in Turkey. The big, big, the big, the bigger population Qatar has all the money. The American system, or the you know the Israel American Saudi UAE system, is a more complex one. It's also one that believes in regional stability. I think that obviously all these kingdoms, like the Gulf states and Saudi Arabia and Jordan, of course they want to preserve themselves as kingdoms. Uh, Egypt wants to be part of that alliance system and doesn't want ISIS to grow. It doesn't want the groups in Libya to spread chaos. But I think this is a an alliance of somehow convenience because not all of these countries get along and they have different issues. I mean, Israel's relations with Egypt and Jordan are not very warm. It's not a human-to-human -human relationship. The Gulf states, of course, the UAE and Bahrain and Saudi Arabia are a kind of three-pronged group that are they themselves are very close as a group. And the Americans, I think, if we look at the American issue, I mean, under the Obama administration, both Saudi Arabia and Israel, I think, had a lot of misgivings about the Iran deal. I think both Saudi Arabia and Israel are more happy with the Trump administration, but I think everyone knows, you know, Trump administration won't be around forever. So that's kind of, I think, where the region is at. Okay, it's... You laid it out very clearly and in all its complexity. Uh, what are some of the lessons learned or which you hope have been learned or which might be learned after ISIS? Well, from a, human, from a very human point of view, I think we need to understand that we, we really need to do a better job preventing genocide and, and uh, you know, these groups that are genocidal, and that, of course, happens to be, in this case, uh, Islamist extremist um, you know, extremism. But, of course, and historically, it was other things. But I, I, it's, it's, it's easy to always say never again. It would be great if the world would actually do something. I, I'm generally cynical. I wish, I wish it would happen. I don't think it will. But I would hope that 
you know, a tiny minority group like Yazidis, you know, you can save people like this. It's not that hard to, to intervene very in a limited way to save a few people and then try to get them out of harm's way. Almost nothing has been done for the Yazidis who fled ISIS. There's hundreds of thousands of them in camps. I think despite 70 countries signing on to fight ISIS, none of them spent any time trying to help these people. And no one's used technology to track down the victims. There are 3,000 missing Yazidi women, children, and men. How come the, these people were, some of them were sold online. How come they can't get Google or some of these big companies to help to find these uh, people using a kind of trail online? I think that's unfortunate. Well, that's one uh, obviously lesson is the human thing that we, you know, we, we can do better in terms of helping refugees and, and IDPs. And it doesn't necessarily have to cost a huge amount of money, but, you know, just kind of hoping that the problem will be someone else's problem doesn't work. And I think that, for instance, when all the refugees began coming to Europe in 2015, I was with them crossing those borders and, and writing about it in, in places like Greece and Macedonia and Serbia. And each country was just like, yeah, well, let's just push this on to someone else. There was no there was no multinational response, which I just don't understand. The countries have the resources to do a multinational response and try to kind of fit, you know, also kind of process people correctly by fingerprinting them and figuring out who is who and stuff like that. But that's unfortunate. I think in terms of the other lesson after ISIS, I think, you know, it's important to ask a big question about what is Iran's role after this, which is, it's totally understandable that groups like Shiite, Shiites in Iraq would look to Iran for inspiration. Obviously, Iran was fighting against Saddam Hussein, which was, you know, who was a, a vicious and awful regime that had to be destroyed. So it's totally understandable that groups like Hezbollah would have looked to Iran at some point for inspiration, whatever. But, you know, the question is, OK, today it seems that these are the more powerful groups. So this isn't the 1980s. These groups are powerful. And it's not clear the degree to which they are improving the societies that they're in. Are the Shiite paramilitaries in Iraq building universities and, in, and making Iraq a better country? I don't see a lot of evidence of that. And it's too bad because I think that Iran as a country, and I don't mean the regime, but the country itself has a lot of promise, obviously. I mean, it's odd, you know, that Iran is the only is the one regime in the region that besides, I guess, Israel that is able to make a whole bunch of indigenous uh, weapon technologies like drones and stuff. Iran is a very has a, all sorts of interesting advancements, but they invest a lot of it in, in things like military technology. They don't invest it in other things. And yet they have a huge amount of human potential. And there's a lot of I think there is a lot of people there that, you know, are being kind of kept in a bit of a. Um, what's the word um, their potential is being restricted by this regime so it's unfortunate and I think it's unclear Iran, Iran spends a lot of time complaining about you know saying that it wants to resist the Americans in Israel it, it maybe a better type of its quote unquote resistance would be if it invested in things like the humanities and, and education and stuff rather than just um, you know looking at, looking at the region as a kind of space for a global conflict that's I think one lesson <laughs> it's, it sounds like uh, we can all take a very serious and sobering moment to learn from this experience, and not, not just the Middle East, but the rest of the world as well. Uh, Seth, you've been very generous with your time. Before we go, tell us what you're working on now. Well, I continue to do, you know, to update 
the looking at the kind of what's happening after the ISIS period. I continue to give you know, talks about it and write about it every day to see, because this obviously the story doesn't end. We have to see what's going to happen next with the kind of Russia, America, Iranian role in the region. So that's something I'm always I'm always writing about and trying to cover. And I'm interested in after you know this project went well. I'm really happy with the way the book turned out, and I, I think it's it spent it took me many years to write a book in the sense that I had wanted to cover other things. I thought about writing a book about the Palestinian experiences I had covering Palestinian issues for years. So I'd like to, you know, move on to another project. I mean, but I think focused again on the Middle East or American American foreign policy or what, what's happened in the Trump administration. Because I think that this is a very interesting region. And I think it's unfortunate sometimes audiences feel that there's a lot of fatigue about learning about war and conflict, whether it's Iraq or dealing with Afghanistan. But it's not just about war and conflict. I mean, these are, you know, a few hundred million people. And I think that this region, you know, affects the entire world, all the way from China, you know, which is involved in this uh, giant uh, Belt and Road Initiative across the region, you know, to India, to Europe. So it's a very important place. Well, I hope you do keep writing about it because After ISIS is beautifully written, powerful, and, and helpful in understanding the complexity of world events that, as you say, are continue to move on. Uh, Seth, I want to thank you for being on the show today. And thanks to our researcher, Bela Pastikov. I, I really enjoyed talking with you, Seth. Thank Take you. Take care.